Uh, greetings, everyone. We'll um, begin our sitting together now. In these next few minutes, as we continue to sit together, I'd like to offer just a few reminders. So we'll continue our, our zazen, our sitting meditation. With a reminder that to sit quietly with some upright a dignity and attention isn't a form of waiting for something. It's the enactment and embodiment of full presence in the moment. And that embodied presence is certainly receptive, willing to meet what comes but it's also expressive. A little ceremony to enact our own wakefulness and Buddha nature through our upright sitting, our basic goodness, our basic sanity.
so we don't become quiet and still to wait for some good thing to happen later, but to be fully present with this moment, this body, this time. And secondly, it's important to notice that we are not going inward. Some people, through a sort of maybe prayerful or not exactly clear, mindful practice, imagine themselves as sort of folding inward during meditation. But instead, this is a, a lifting up of your heart and being present, not a, a waiting and not a going inward but connecting with this moment and remembering all of us who are sitting together in the world in which we're sitting. So our silence and stillness and uprightness are not about withdrawal or going inward or waiting, but about a full and robust presence without our interference too much with our ordinary way of carrying a self forward into the moment. Just sitting, just being upright, present, and awake. It seems like such a small thing, but in our world right now, being peaceful and present and awake is actually a radical act. One other thing to just hold in your awareness as you sit in as much presence 
as you can bring to the moment, as much uprightness as you can manifest through your body. Is that at least 70 or so people right now are sitting with you. You're not alone. And you have a good number of people essentially holding you up. Breathing with you. Sitting with you. And of course, there are all of those throughout the world who might be engaged in some meditation or prayer or other rituals who we don't know, who aren't on this particular meeting online, but who are enacting to the best of their ability their aspirations for goodness in the world. Let yourself be supported and encouraged by all the practice in which you're immersed and offer your practice for that encouragement for everyone else. As a reminder of this shared universal practice, we chant the verse of the robe. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. In saying those words, the one true nature which harmonizes all being, <clears throat> such an important reminder these days, and that we rest in this vast field of benefaction. And the world hasn't looked so much like that in many ways, um, and we have many things uh, to deal with and many challenges. But looking forward to what's uh, coming with some realistic sense of possibility. Uh, and I don't just mean um, world situations, but that, that's included, is important. We're in a, a season right now in the Christian calendar of Advent, 
Some of you are familiar with this, some of you might not be. Um, the, the word Advent is derived uh, from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming, which is translated from the Greek uh, parousia. And this year, that calendar in the, the Christian uh, faith is from November 29th to December 24th, because it's about the coming of, of Christ, or the coming of liberation or freedom, the coming of a turn. Um, so even if um, this particular way of understanding Advent uh, in, a, in a Christian context is not your way, I think this season is, is altogether important right now as we all sit with what's coming. And you can add the various things, um, these holidays that are coming, the end or the turn of a year, the shift in political uh, situations, the coming of vaccines, the hope for this or that. Um, but it isn't exactly a, a, a waiting the the great Polish theologian and fervent Nazi dissenter Dietrich Bonhoeffer said the celebration of Advent, and he was speaking from a, a Christian point of view at this in using this term. Um, and these are words that are an older language, but I, I want to use them and, and we'll go from there. He said the celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. And what I resonated with when I read that uh, older quote is that there is a way of celebration, which is our ceremony of, of practice, our zazen is a, a celebration of our own Buddha nature. It is possible for those who understand uh, dukkha, trouble, and who know themselves to be less than hopefully what we could be in our actions and yet know ourselves to be uh, perfected in our essence and looking forward to what might, might come forward through practice. It's very different than the waiting I was talking about, of course. I think that our practice is more, in my understanding, the deep practice of remembering remembering something that somewhere we have known or felt or intuited or been shown, but weren't sure how to, to, to manifest, to, to bring forward, to embody in our lives. I remember the first time I ever walked into a Zen a temple in a Zendo, uh, this happened to be Green Gulch Farm, the rural practice center for the San Francisco Zen Center into what's called Cloud Hall, uh, the larger building, and then walked into the Zendo. It didn't feel like I was entering something new, although it was foreign to me. I had not been in one. It seemed like I was remembering something instead of learning something. And so today, I want to speak some about some of why we practice and remembering what we're doing in inquiry because this can become as anything else 
something routine and habitual in a way. And the function of this time of year is renewal and remembering. And to have some intention about what's coming. I think that most of us, and I've, I've said this many times, come to practice out of a couple of main channels, uh, sometimes both. One is inspiration. We're called to practice because we have seen someone, met someone, read something, uh, had an experience that inspired us and we want to understand it. We know that it's pointing to something and we want to be able to follow that because it gives us life and, and some energy and inspiration. And sometimes we come out of desolation or desperation. Nothing else has worked. And on our knees, or worse, we come looking for a way to bring ourselves back into full vitality, back to life, back into life. And sometimes we have both things. And this particular practice of, of inquiry invites a, you know, a warm connection and a deep presence among us. And in some ways, it's an antidote to both, both of these entryways. It's certainly a balm for desolation. And during this time, many of you said it's um, sort of life-saving or life-giving, at least to be able to come uh, each week like this together. And some sort of a true inspiration out of our connection. Not an inspiration that is false, full of false kind of promises or um, shiny objects that, uh, but, but actually a real inspiration and a balm for desolation or desperation. I also think that inquiry is a corrective and offers an appropriate kind of inspiration. Uh, it's a corrective to um, leadership, for example, that can be false. Uh, a charismatic kind of energy which can be alluring but not substantive or real. Because following someone or some kind of teaching that is like that is the formula for real desolation. So we want to have inspiration that is true and that we can take refuge and count on. And we would like to have some sort of uh, freedom from desolation, not by following false things. I hope these, uh, these resonate with your, your own experience. What calls me to practice and what does it meet or touch? And in the, in the Buddhist practices uh, of any sort that are based deeply and truly on the Buddhist teachings, there are a few things which are essential, which once again, it's important to remember in this time of inquiry. Number one is the principle of conditionality, that everything is conditional, everything is contingent, everything is flowing and moving and impermanent, and that this is the reality in which we're immersed and in which we're born and die. 
And then the teachings give us the four practice principles, sometimes called the Four Noble Truths, or Stephen Bachelor calls them the Four Full Tasks, that they're ways that we can understand how to meet this world, which is impermanent and conditional. We're given a perspective of mindful awareness, a foundational tool in which to meet, in which to operate the four practice principles. And we're also given the power and the principle of self-reliance and self-responsibility. So I want to just talk about those a little bit. And also three other terms. And this is, remember, this is our reminder talk today. This is the, this is the remembering, like, what are we here for and what's coming? What's to come? If we live in a world that's contingent and conditional, nothing is for certain, for sure. But we can practice in that world if we understand the four practice principles, using mindfulness as a foundation and being self-responsible and self-reliant even as we understand our interdependence. There's a little bit of a, a paradox there, of course. We hear teachings of dukkha, which rather than thinking of it as suffering, think of it as life as it is. It's everything that it is. Life is everything. Uh, the word tanha, which is not so commonly used uh, in our English teachings, but it means craving, which is sometimes thought of as the cause of dukkha. Um, but really it's reactivity. A reactivity to this contingent, ever-changing world. Life is as it is, and we react to it. And nirvana is what we hope or think might be some release. But really nirvana is a non-reactive, ethical space. And we have these moments of nirvana, these moments where we step out of reactivity and into an ethical way of according with life. So these are just some moments of remembering of what, what are we here for and actually what are we practicing and studying and deeply questioning. That's what inquiry is, is this kind of question. Like what's possible? We live in an impermanent conditional existence. We have practices which can help us navigate that through mindful awareness and a deep sense of self-responsibility and self-reliance. What we meet is... <clears throat> some dissatisfaction or suffering, but really it's just life unfolding as it is. And we crave for it to be otherwise. We notice our reactivity. We desire to be free of that reactivity, which sometimes we think of as, as nirvana, which is really a non-reactive moment where reactivity quiets down. We meet life as it is in an ethical way. These are foundational Buddhist teachings just spoken of in a more contemporary way. What the, what the Chan tradition or the Zen teachers in, in China and in Japan did was <clears throat> take these teachings, step away from a lot of the sort of religiosity and some of the things that had uh, crept in, complex metaphysics. And they were provocative and outrageous men and women 
who said we have to respond to the core questions of just life itself. And this is why I'm saying what I'm saying today. This is that reminder, rather than trying to understand a bunch of complex metaphysical things, can we respond to the core questions that we bring to life? The, the power of the Buddhist teachings that they took, they were powerful because the Buddha demonstrated that one could overcome a great deal of what causes us as fallible, fumbly humans to feel limited, constrained, unfulfilled, and stuck. Maybe these things are, are things that you can feel. And the whole metaphor of freedom that you get in, in Buddhism is liberation. It kind of implies that <clears throat> the voice that we hear in these kind of teachings is coming from a place that is no longer locked or fixed into the inertia of habit. And in some ways, what we're speaking about here and what we're practicing and what inquiry is how to shake the strength, the inertia of habit. But in doing so, we don't want to make the Buddha or some Zen master or any one of our teachers or spiritual friends um, into something that's too perfect. Because then we lose our humanity. And when you do that, when you make someone else that way, you lose some of your own. And it's what can happen in many traditions, not just Buddhist traditions. The, a trusted teacher or spiritual friend can be an inspiration, but it needs to be based on your own realistic aspirations. What do you want? given that this is how life is, what are your deepest aspirations? And part of what I've seen so often and felt in my own life is that we can be a seeker forever and never really step into the fullness of what practice is offering us, as if we're standing back a little bit, waiting, as I mentioned, turned inward. And we can be a seeker to avoid dukkha, dissatisfaction, avoid suffering, avoiding life as it is, which is impossible. Dukkha is not to be avoided. It's to be seen and understood and navigated. The Four Noble Truths don't say, if you practice this, there will be no more dukkha. It says dukkha is a given. So we can be a seeker forever trying to get rid of suffering. And that's actually not an appropriate inquiry into what's possible. We could be a seeker forever to extinguish craving, tanha, completely, and no longer be subject to reactivity. But that's completely inhuman. If we do that, we're going to be fighting with ourselves forever. If you're a human being, in a mammal body, there are going to be cravings, but there can be some which are exaggerated and not quite appropriate in their unnecessary ways in which we get caught in habit patterns of craving. And that 
kind of reactivity you can learn about and navigate differently. But to extinguish craving, that's inhuman. We might want to be a seeker forever, avoiding dukkha, extinguishing craving, and then entering nirvana permanently. This doesn't even match the teachings. Because the teachings tell us that all things are conditional. All things are impermanent. So there's nothing permanent, not even nirvana. There are moments when reactivity fades and we can taste freedom. And we can live much more centered in that over time. That's true. If we don't avoid dukkha, we say life as it is, is where I'm practicing. We don't extend to attempt to extinguish cravings, but know how to navigate them. And we don't have some idea of some heavenly release of entering nirvana permanently, but appreciate and open to these spaces where we're not in reactivity. And we don't give over our responsibility to another person to save us. That's a spiritual bypass. If I just have the right guru, have the right teacher, have the right belief or some something special, uh, I won't have to do the work, but you do. This is the self-reliance side. And also, the other side, which is a, a trap, is if you think you can do it alone. That's spiritual arrogance. Because we're completely dependent on each other. And these things work together. Our own self-responsibility and our interdependence. And this is kind of the corner we find ourselves in. And the great gift of the Buddhist teachings and all those teachers who followed him shows showing us an ethical, mindful, human way to live, which is full of choice, with far less habit, with more humility and generosity, with less selfishness and self-centeredness, more wakefulness and less illusion about what life actually is and no grasping at permanent solutions or universal protectors. We're all in this together. It's a little bit like I say to couples um, in marital therapy. This, this isn't a relationship that's 50-50. I'll meet you halfway. You do your half, and I'll do mine. No, this is 100-100. You have to be all in. Offer yourself completely and be met completely. If you do, and that's kind of what it means to raise your hand and come forward, inquiry is a way to notice how you maintain your barriers to freedom. These are things you can question. How am I blocking myself? How am I not allowing myself those nirvanic moments of freedom from reactivity? What am I grasping? What am I holding to? Not how am I wrong or bad for grasping, but what am I grasping? So that you can open to your deepest aspiration to see if those aspirations are leading you where you think you want to go in your life. And to join with others in this more radical and liberating way of living, which is truly ethical and upright, and yet completely human, and full of forgiveness. These are the kind of things I came to practice for out of my own 
inspiration at seeing what was possible and my own desperation of feeling like I'd, I didn't know where else to turn. Or I wanted to understand life as it is instead of the models of life that I kept grasping for, which seemed out of my reach because they were, because they were unrealistic. Because I thought I could be perfected. I thought I could be free. I thought there was an ideal that was beyond being human. And what I found were ideals which were quite human and free and full of love and full of care and full of kindness that were still messy and human. But there was another possibility. And this is what I wanted, and so this is what I offer now to you. Not perfection, but a full humanity and ongoing forgiveness. Not some excuses, but also no criticism, humiliation, or shame. We have to be self-responsible, but not criticized. A willingness to be self-responsible, to take care of my life, no matter what happens. To stay true to that. And to surrender to the interdependence of all beings, which is a profound kind of generosity and kindness and a letting go of arrogance and self-centeredness. And the commitment to start over again and again and again and again. And no matter what you believe or what tradition you practice, you can utilize these practices because you can't really sidestep these things without some pretty tough consequences in life now. I don't mean later. T to not be self-responsible, you get some not so great results. To not understand your interdependence causes breaks and rifts. To not be willing to surrender to life as it is to engage mindful awareness and use a fourfold uh, path, you're going to create more habit, more struggle. But if you do practice in a wholesome manner and wholeheartedly, you might discover a more gentle way of being with yourself and with others. And uh, and this is this is truly inspiring, and the best antidote to despair. Finding that it's possible to practice this way and to practice with others in this way. In thinking about these things and considering what to speak about today, I felt a kind of um, a, a poignancy, the, the difficulty in expressing fully what I want to express. Um, but in doing so, I began to meet the very things that I've been talking about in myself. I have to forgive myself and to bring myself wholeheartedly into that aspiration and inviting you to do the same thing. This is a, a real kind of practice that humans can do that will make a very big difference. And this is a way of inviting what we want uh, to come and to meet it. And that's why we sit, that's why we put our hands together like this to meet life as it is and to surrender to it and to offer ourselves fully and energetically to it 
So these are my reminders for inquiry and for Advent right now. And if you have some questions and things that you'd like to address fully around your own aspirations and your own way of practicing, please, please raise your hand so we can meet. Mute and start video. Hi, Robin, Jim. I do hear you. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, great. Um, here, let me just, yeah. Are you having trouble? Um, slight, <laughs> slight technical delay. Yes, fine. Um, in order to hear you, we have to kind of move you over towards the stereo. So that means we're kind of far away. So yeah. anyway, uh, I um, have been moving between something you um, spoke about at the beginning of your remarks, which were very rich. And um, I hope will be written down so that we can read them someday. Um, but um, between sort of, you know, darkness and, um, uh, not seeing possibility, seeing obstacles, and light, vision, spaciousness. And two things have shifted that. That's I was sort of in the, the dark place yesterday and was able to connect with some spiritual friends and just be met. Mm -hmm. um, I was like, we're not going to fix this, but I just need to not be alone with this. And so that was you spoke very directly to that. And so for me, a lot of my practice has been, um, yeah, learning how to be vulnerable and say, I I'm freaked out right now and I don't need anyone to fix it. I just need to not be alone in it, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but the other piece that um, I know that you know well and teach, but you didn't reference, but to me has been a huge learning is the role that the body has in all this. Because the other thing that happened yesterday is that because of commitments I had um, and my trainer being on vacation at 6.30 in the morning on Monday and it was super cold, I didn't get, I did go for a walk, but I didn't get the kind of um, physical activity that I need for my system to regulate. Yep. And I knew today I could swim. And so those pieces of knowing that not only is whatever is moving through us transitory and changing, just like all the stuff around us and all the people around us, inside our own body is also a changing experience. And the thoughts inform what happens in the body and we can meet the body to some extent. Um, and today I'm in that much more spacious, optimistic, visionary place. And I think one gift of practice is to keep just a thread of remembrance that just because in an hour, I might again, not see possibility and be overwhelmed and feel my neck and shoulders tighten that that isn't any more real than this moment of 
incredible spaciousness, possibility and connection. They're both equally real. Mm -hmm. And it's our practice that helps us keep that little thread that's like, okay, I, I see this is just the current show on the movie screen, but you know, it's a 64 plex, you know, there are a lot of things showing. And um, to some extent we can choose which movie, but, um, but also knowing how those movies play out in our body and how we have to meet our body, um, you know, its own natural physical reactions. Right, and all the habits and reactivity, the terms that I was using, they're all embodied. Right. Every, everything is embodied. I, I said embodiment a couple of times, but I didn't speak to it so clearly as you're doing. So I'm glad that you're underlining that because it's, it's why we have a practice which invites us to use our body. The way we sit, walk, stand, bow, move, do things is primarily embodied. And then we talk about it and there are things that go on, but unless it is integrated in this, because that's this is the vehicle of awakening, then it's just a good idea. Right. Yeah. So um, that's all. I just wanted to add that little cherry on top because hey. it's very in my current experience and is transformative to Absolutely. be able to meet the body and say, okay, buddy, what do you need? And my body's like, go swim, even if it's 40 degrees. <laughs> and then all yep. possibilities are possible. Well, it's part of the reason we sit still and get quiet so we can remember. Oh yeah, yeah. this is my body. My body. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Thank you. Mm -hmm. There she is. Hi, Lori. Hi there. How are you? I'm doing well. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to, um, just wanted to share with you, I guess, um, you know, the holidays are always hard for me mm -hmm. and, um, this one was no different. <laughs> um, uh, um, yeah. And so it, at some point I was thinking, and I think I've mentioned this to you before, it seems like, um, you know, you, you do a lot of work to open yourself up because, <laughs> I mean, that's what you want to do, right? I mean, you can be open to other people and to experience and so forth. And the downside of that is when the experience isn't going the way you want, <laughs> there's, the, there's the problem, is it's really painful. Um, well, that's certainly the double-edged sword of all this, isn't it? You're not just simply opening yourselves up. You're practicing so you have the choice and the freedom to open when you can and when you want to, instead of being locked in a pattern that's not of your own choice. So it's not just to be wide open. It's to have the freedom to be open when it's there. And also the freedom to protect yourself when that's required. Because you're right, uh, the double-edged sword of mindfulness and this kind of sensitivity is you're, you're more sensitive and caring and loving and open and compassionate, and you're more sensitive too. And so you have to really be self-responsible, that side of it, and really care for yourself well. Right. So um, 
so there was a a point of um you know where that got really really dicey for me and and um wanting so much to i don't know to be to, to, for things to go well and that doesn't you know so um but then at the that end was part of that that was the craving side right yeah <laughs> that's it's always there and but at the end the very end of it um it was very strange because all of a sudden um I'm talking about my mother, as we all know. That's the only person I talk about. Um, <laughs> um, She's your strongest teacher. Yes, she is. And so um, at the end of it, I, I sat down with her. She was begging me to take her back here and live with me. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, and, and for some reason, and I can't tell you why, I said to myself, I just said, I just listened to her. Mm -hmm. And, and that really helped because she got to say what she needed to say. And then I could say, well, mm, I don't think that's, that's a possibility. I can't take care of you. I'm not capable of doing that. But, and somehow there, there was a, a little shift. And then mm -hmm. I reached over and hugged her and said, come here, you know, hug me harder. And so it was a whole different experience. It wasn't just this constant fighting, you know, and it, well, you just, what you just explained with the enactment of almost everything that I talked about, is you stop fighting and trying to get it to go a certain way and just stopped and received her just like she was. She felt met and you had less struggle. And as she felt met, she could express what she wanted. You could express what you were wanted or capable of, but then drew her even closer. Because now there was that habit, that old habit of how it's going to go, and the resistance wasn't there anymore. Mm -hmm. And there was a little more freedom, a little more choice, a little more not locked into reactivity on either side, mm -hmm. a little more forgiveness. Yeah. So, so that moment was was really nice, but it I, it was like climbing a mountain, you know, a really high mountain. <laughs> But you know, the hard climbing is the same old stuff over and over and over, really. I, I know it is. You know, know and it, it, it once you, you had a, a moment of clarity, of, of a clear vision, which turned something right then, and then there began a cascade of possibility. That's, that's really great. Yeah, I, I, I'm hopefully I'm shorting, shortening the amount of time that it takes before I can make that shift. <laughs> I don't know what, how much time I have left, but <laughs> but anyway. So that that's that's what we um, uh, we all hope for, isn't it? Shortening the time and making it a little more uh, smoother and not last quite as long. <laughs> so so it gives me some hope, but it's. Um, yeah, and I really, I really felt the pain, a lot of pain this time. Well, you were just, you're, now once again, you're describing the two sides, the inspiration and desperation. I was desperate for it not to be the same. You had a moment of non-reactivity, a little nirvanic moment, which lets you know, oh, this is possible. So, good job. <laughs> this is how it goes. It's not magical. It goes like this. I know I'm a slow learner. I think. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but uh, you're you're um you're a learner along with the rest of us.
Anyway, thank you. I just wanted to share with Thanks, you. Thanks, Lori. You can see that these principles are not esoteric. They're every day. But if you begin to pay attention to them, hi, Clayton, in the ways that we're talking about, it makes a difference in your everyday quite a bit. Hi. Hi there. Um, it was really nice to hear what Lori and Robin had to say. And I feel really nervous because I, I, I want to, well, let me just explain. Um, I know that I've been with you in the chair at Afamata, and uh, you told me a story, an inquiry about a man whose body had failed him in some significant way. I think he was, I don't know, paralyzed, and you said we are not our bodies. And, oh, um, I was telling a story from a, a Ram Dass experience. Uh -huh. And, and, um, so I was at Barton Springs last week and I was swimming and my body, I got mad or really sad because my body was failing me. Like I used to be able to just swim and go to that spacious open place. But this time I was like mad because my body couldn't do what it used to do. And I know, I mean, usually Peg told me the other day, she used a good phrase, the unconscious arrogance of the of the healthy or the, um, yeah. And I, I know I've had that. And um, so I'm grappling with my body not doing what it used to do. And um, I kind of had this breakthrough where I knew that all my ideas of who I am, like someone who can run up the hill at Barton Springs and feel joyful and all these ideas of being that they're, they're not holding up right now, um, which is okay. But, you know, you used to talk to us about no self. And like, I, I knew what you were talking about theoretically as a concept, but to actually feel it in my body and see the version I had of myself kind of sifting through my fingers without anything to hold on to. So um, can you just explain to me what that no self idea is so I can kind of not be so sad about it? Well, your sadness is appropriate. Okay. Because there are things that you're losing that you held on to that you craving. This is one of the habits that you have and I had. I spent yesterday in doctor's offices <laughs> because, um, as a follow-up to my one cataract surgery and getting ready for the next because my body is changing. And by the way, the original story that I told was a man who was a quadriplegic. It was a young man who'd had a diving accident and he came onto the stage to introduce Ram Das at his invitation. And, and he had to tap out the words, you know, cause he didn't have a voice anymore on his computer. So it showed and it said, RD Ram Dass says, we're not our bodies. What he meant was we're not only our bodies. He was happy. This young man in the wheelchair actually had a good bit of um, non-reactivity and freedom, even though he had lost what looked like everything. Mm -hmm. so it was kind of a dramatic example, of course. 
So here we are losing things because of age, because of COVID, because of this, because of that. Uh, and the, the necessary grief, just like when you grieve someone you've loved, that you've lost, the grief is a form of love, not just of craving. And part of the grief of the loss of our body is a grief of a form of love, of appreciation of what we've had and how beautiful it's been and how special it's been. And how I noticed as I was walking down the steps yesterday, I was holding the handrail. It's like, I used to run down the steps, bound <laughs> down the steps. And now I'm holding the handrail like an old person. What the hell? <laughs> it's a strange feeling. Uh, and yet, aside from the outward appearances, am I less reactive? Am I more free? Am I more appreciative? Am I more forgiving? I would say yes, but partly because I can um, let myself feel the loss because clinging to try to be something I'm not is a, is a, a failing practice. It's actually made my recovery so much worse to keep holding on to this idea of the way things should be right now. Right. And, and it's like, oh, oh, now it's this way. Because that's going to come anyway, if you're fortunate to live long enough. Uh, and I'm sorry that it's come with COVID at your age now. You're such a, a beautiful, vital person. And you've seen yourself that way and other people see you that way because of your vibrancy and your youth and you're, you're very attractive and all this and bright and smart. And so any little diminution of that is like a narcissistic injury <laughs> to us. And I don't mean you're a narcissist. I just mean, you know, it's this. I am a narcissist. Like <laughs> I mean, It's an injury to us that feels like, oh, another blow. But this, this no self, like this is my chance to try to understand it in a no real. Individually existing self. Oh. It doesn't mean that there's no self. There's a, it's a shorthand for no individually existing self. There's no self thing called a self that is separate from everything else that's relating to the world. There's a sense of self because of our perceptual capacities that we seem like we're separate from the fray. But then when you have experiences that remind you that you're not, it shakes that idea that what we cling to, this idea of Claytonness or Flintness is a fiction. And it's functional and it's helpful, but it separates us from the larger flow of things. Well, thank you for explaining that because I've been trying to figure out what is left if there is no self, but I get what you're saying now a little bit clearer. And yeah, there's no individually existing self. Of course, there's a sense of self. And of course, my body is not your body and, you know, I'm not you and all that. And yet we are all living this one life together. And so it's that sort of paradox of self-responsibility and complete interdependence all at the same time. Yeah. Well, thank you. And I, um, that really helps a lot. The new one that you're learning about and meeting in yourself, love her, get to know her. Yeah. Thank you. And I, and the, and the younger one that is fading, love her and appreciate her. 
she got a little beat up lately. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Um, but yes, thank you. Um, I I think I can, the grieving's kind of coming to a close. I just needed to ask you that question. Yeah, I've had some of that same grieving and some um, irritation and anger about my lack of ability to control some of it. And some of that is me. <clears throat> and some of it I realize is wash over grief about my father's death. I couldn't stop. It couldn't change, couldn't do. And that that will be true for me too. Thanks, Colleen. Thank you. Uh, hello, Claudine. Hello, Flint. Nice to see you. It's good to see you this evening. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was. It was so so funny because. I want to share something with you. When you began to speak, I was struggling because I couldn't feel really centered, you know? Mm -hmm. And I needed that because I needed the compassion I can give to, to some little parts in me that can be afraid or sad. Mm -hmm. And I, I felt separated from myself, if, if it does make sense. It totally. And I, I was trying by seeking, 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 and going, how did you say that? Inward? Inward. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then you said the right word. <laughs> Suddenly, wow, I, I came back to, to, to my center, and it was yeah. so much easier. And so I... That's, I, actually, I that's actually a beautiful description of what Clayton was just talking about. When you go looking for, you don't find it. But when you open to your life, it's right there. Yes. And I felt met by all, all what you said. And, uh, ah, and this idea of, of space that is so important. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Good. I'm glad you. I'm glad you shared that because that's a really important turn. Yes. And I'm yes. sure it resonates with others as well. I just, I had this silly feeling. That was very interesting because you know, you know, very often, even I ask you, uh, but how are other people feeling about that? Because I, I'm not very sure of how I if I am completely normal in my way of feeling <laughs> And I was thinking, oh, you are, you are talking just for me because it's so exactly. And I thought, well, <laughs> I, it's, I'm absolutely sure that Flint is talking for all of us. So we might well be these little differences. We might well have the same difficulties and the same struggle and the same joy yeah and i'm speaking from my own experience too i'm included yeah. in that so. yeah. and i enjoy so much when laurie at the end of the sharing 
she loved and was so so open. I I love the joy as well. Yeah. So well, if you just took the first the first picture of Laurie when she came on and the last picture when we left. Yes. So it was it was very a very nice moment. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so glad that you joined us. It looks like we're at the end of our time and I want to be um, a good steward of our time and not go too long and also so you have a little little time to meet together uh, in your small groups. I think these the discussions, the, the inquiry, the connections that we have can seem in some ways to some people so ordinary and everyday. Uh, there's nothing fancy or magical about them. But it's where our real freedom comes. Uh, and it's what you can trust, I think, um, more deeply, in which I'm immensely grateful. So thank you for that. Let's <clears throat> recite the four practice principles in which all this is based. As, as a reminder, as it can go deeply in our, our bodies. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Thank you, Jessica, for supporting everything in the background, and I'll invite you back now. Thank you so much, Flint. And thank you, everyone. Apamata's programs and facilities are supported through your generosity, and each and every one of us makes such a difference. You can find a link uh, on the apamata.org website for contributions for the teachers and to the facilities. And also please feel free to join us um, right now at the after inquiry or on the porch uh, link on the calendar. Thank you. <laughs>